This morning, I want you to take your Bibles and have them ready. I don't have a specific scripture that we're going to go to. We're going to kind of jump around a little bit. So just kind of have them ready and uh, be prepared to look at several different passages. But let's go ahead and have a word of prayer. And we'll get started. Father, we are so thankful for the good service we've had so far, the good singing, and uh, just, Lord, all that's taken place so far. Thank you for the young folks helping with the communion and the offering. What a blessing to see. But I pray now as we turn our attention to the word and to this very, very important and wonderful topic, I pray uh, that you'll give us uh, clarity of thought. Fill me with your spirit. Lord, help me to preach today in a way that is as clear and accurate and practical and right. And I pray, Father, I'd say only what I should and not what I ought not. And I just pray, Lord, you'd bless the message. But I pray also we'd all have ears to hear. And that all of us would think about these things and apply them to our life. I know some parts of this message will apply uh, just to certain folks in the, in the room. Uh, but parts of it will apply to all of us. And so I pray, give wisdom and guidance today. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Today is a truly wonderful day at Friendship Bible Church. In just a little while, we're going to have our annual meeting, uh, which might not sound very wonderful. But it is actually a very wonderful thing. I mean, I, I used to absolutely... Uh, shudder at the thought of business meetings in the, in the church, but our business meetings the last few years have been a blessing, and I, I think this one will be no exception to that. We're going to look at some great things God has done in the past year. 2013 was a, was a good year. Not, ever, not everything was wonderful and perfect in 2013 here at FBC, but most was, and God blessed, and we're, we're very thankful and praising for it. Charles Spurgeon speaking one time about the history of his very first church, before he was even really famous. It was at Water Beach, was his first church. And he was talking about the success that he had seen there. And he reminded his readers that the Lord alone accounts for the success of a church. Listen to what he said. Speaking of that church, he said, That little vessel, launched in boisterous times, has been safely steered by its captain even until now. It has passed through rough waters and fierce storms. But it still lives, thanks to him who sits at the helm. Hmm. Friendship Bible Church lives on and labors on, thanks to him, the Lord Jesus Christ, who sits at the helm. During the meeting to come, we're going to share all kinds of information about the finances. There's, as we mentioned earlier, some information back there. If you can't stay, I still encourage you to take some of that with you when you go and you can see these things. And we're going to talk about some of the finances and things God has entrusted the church with and the ministries that that has been used for and all of that stuff. It's all good stuff. It's all wonderful stuff, and I hope you stay. But before we look forward to the future, I think it would also be good for us to do a little bit of looking back, just a little ways back. Before we look forward, let's look backwards. It was 2011, as the year was drawing to a close, that we t- undertook an effort to define the vision, the mission, the vision, and the goals of Friendship Bible Church. And we undertook that for the next five years. The entire church family took, play, took part in that and was drawn into that discussion. And after several discussions about that, what is the mission of the church? What is the vision of our church? What are our goals as a church? After some discussion and meetings, uh, we came up with what we called the 610 plan. And that plan sprang from the fact, that that name of that plan sprang from the fact that uh, Beth and I were ending our fifth year as uh, your servants in this place. And uh, we had started here with a five-year plan, and uh, quite frankly with a five-year commitment. 
And we had agreed together that no matter what happened in this place, no matter what happened in this, uh, what was then a less than 10 member Randolph Christian Church, no matter what happened, we were committed for five years. Perhaps you think we should have been committed, I don't know. <laughs> we weren't going to quit until we'd given it five years. You know, it's been said many times, and Pastor Phil is very fond of quoting, that we oftentimes overestimate what can be accomplished in one year, and we oftentimes underestimate what can be accomplished in five. And so we initially committed to five years, and we had no plans beyond that. But as 2011 drew to a close, we saw, you know, God's, God's not done with this little church, and he's doing some great things. And so this effort was undertaken. You know, we had only planned on five years. We had nothing after five years. And so this effort was undertaken to come up with our five-year plan for the next five years, years six through ten, hence the name. And we haven't printed that out for you. That document is very interesting, and I hope you would, you would read that. But we didn't print it out because it's a little bit long. Uh, it is available on the church website, and I hope you'll go there and take a look at that uh, because it describes what we're trying to accomplish. Do you want to know what this church is trying to accomplish? That's the document to go look at, uh, and it's available on the website. If you don't have access to that, we will print you a copy. But here we are now in, year, in 2014, and it marks the beginning of really the third year in that five-year plan. Now, throughout the process of developing that plan for our future, there was a verse of Scripture that kind of guided, at least it guided my thinking. I think it guided everybody's thinking. And it was in Exodus. It's where the Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the children of Israel to go forward. Exodus 14, 15. And we believe then, and we believe now, that the church sitting still, well, it's a disgrace. The church must be moving. And the church must be moving forward, always. The only thing worse than a church sitting still is a church that's falling backwards. And I think both of those are a terrible sorrow to the Savior. In Revelation chapter 3 and verse number 16, Jesus described his feelings toward one such stagnant, unmoving, laissez-faire church. That was the church at Laodicea. He didn't hold back. He spoke pretty plainly when he said that he thought they were lukewarm and that he was going to spew them out of his mouth. A phrase in the King James, which literally means vomit. Jesus was saying to that church that was sitting still or falling back or lukewarm, uh, you make me sick. I'd like to vomit you out of my mouth. Church, we are not done yet. I hope we all know that. I hope we all know that we need to be moving forward. I hope we know that we're not done. I haven't heard a trumpet yet. Has anybody heard a trumpet? And until we hear the trumpet, we need to keep on. Jesus said to occupy until he comes in Luke chapter 19 and verse 13. In other words, we need to keep busy, we need to keep working, we need to keep moving forward until Jesus comes. And so we try in our feeble way, and we'll talk about some of these things in the meeting in just a little bit to keep doing that. But there is one major area that I want to talk about this morning, one major area where we are, uh, we are really moving forward, and it starts today, and I want to spend the rest of my time this morning on that. Today we're going to accomplish the goal of fully implementing an elder-led uh, church government here at Friendship Bible Church. In just a short period of time, at the conclusion of today's service, we're going to invite Jim Moore and Don Richards and Ray Spangler to come up, and we're going to recognize them as elders starting in 2014. We've talked about this for a long time, you know. We've talked about this literally for years. We have held two iterations of the eldership exploration 
training classes. We've gone through a couple of years of the Leadership Training Institute. I have preached the biblical principles of eldership from this pulpit multiple times. We spoke of it early on. Most of you probably weren't here for the series on uh, uh, what we believe. That was very early on in our ministry here, but uh, we talked about it then. We talked about it in the series on First Timothy, which... Most of you probably weren't here for that one either, but we talked about eldership in there, and of course we discussed it several times as we went through the book of Acts not too long ago. And so there's been many opportunities for to discuss what it means. And if you missed any of those, they're all in print, and you can certainly go and get them, and at least the Acts sermon is, or series is available on, online and in audio too, so you, you can brush up on any of that stuff. I don't want to spend a whole lot of time describing what eldership is this morning, because we've done it. Uh, but let me just summarize a little bit. Uh, what we've learned from all of that study. Here's what we've learned and here's what we believe. We believe that there are two primary local church offices defined by scripture, elders and deacons. We believe that in the Bible, the terms elder, overseer, pastor, and bishop all refer to the same office and may therefore be used interchangeably. We believe that scripture teaches elders are to oversee all aspects of the local church. We believe that scripture provides specific qualifications for any who would serve as an elder in the local church. We believe that scripture teaches the desirability of a plurality of elders working together to maintain oversight of the local church. And we believe scripture contains multiple examples of a single elder exercising oversight over the body of elders. And therefore, the desired leadership model at Friendship Bible Church is... A body of elders who meet the scriptural qualifications in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 and who are themselves overseen by one of their number that we at FBC choose to call pastor. It's what the Bible teaches. It's what our Constitution embraces. And it's what we're going to fully implement here this morning. Yesterday I had the wonderful privilege, and many of you participated in it, uh, I had the wonderful privilege to officiate at the wedding of Paul and Christy. It was such a sweet day. It's such a blessed event when two people who love the Lord join their lives together in marriage. And they start off right from the beginning, including the Lord. I mentioned, if, if you were here, bear with me as I repeat some of this, but I, I mentioned the fact that Christine, while we were sitting down and meeting and talking about you know, what they wanted for the wedding, she very adamantly said to me, There's one thing I want, I want a sermon in the wedding. I'd never had anybody ask me for that before. So I preached a sermon in the wedding. And I thought about what I should preach to them, and I, I thought, well, I should preach something about what the Bible says about success in marriage. And I, I kind of threw together three different points. I said, if you want to have success in marriage, you need to write at the start and ensure God is at the center of your marriage. You need to, uh, number two, hold on to each other no matter what. And number three, you need to trust God's pattern for marriage, which is defined in Ephesians chapter 5. That third point as I was thinking about this sermon, I realized, you know what, that last point, how to have success in marriage is to trust God's pattern applies to us as a church, too. How do we have success as a church? Well, we need to trust God's pattern for the church. We can't go wrong by doing things God's way. C.S. Lewis, in his Chronicles of Narnia, said, Aslan's instructions always work. There are no exceptions. It's true. It's true. So today's a good day. Today's the day when we're going to move forward as a church. We're done talking about eldership. I don't know about you, but I'm sick to death about talking about eldership. And so probably are these four guys who have been put through all of this. Today we're going to implement it. Now to be clear, we've actually functioned in this role. So ever since Pastor Phil came on, he and I have functioned as the two elders here. But in many ways we feel like 
Now is we're going to have five. This is where we're truly implementing the model. So here's what I want to do in the time that remains this morning. I want to give a little charge to the guys who are going to be serving as elders. And I told them I was going to try and preach them right out of the room here this morning, so I don't know if I could do that or not, but I'm going to try. I'm going to give a charge to them, and I want to give a little charge to the church as well, because there's responsibilities on both sides here that we need to talk about. First of all, let me talk to the three men who are going to be elders, and the rest of you can just kind of listen in. This is for them, but you need to hear it as well. You men have been buried under this topic for so long that I know that nothing I want to say here is going to be new to you, but nonetheless, there are several truths about eldership I think you should remember. Let's look at 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5. And verse number 1. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse number 1. I love the sound of rustling Bible pages. It's one of my favorite sounds. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse number 1. The elders who are among you I exhort, I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed, shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion but willingly, not for dishonest gain but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. The first thought I would draw your attention to is this. Elders are the leaders of the local church. Elders are the leaders of the local church. Notice that especially in verse number two, shepherd the flock of God, which is among you serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly. You three men are going to be joining Pastor Phil and I as the leaders of this local church, and this flock is going to be looking to you for leadership. And guys, it's not a title or position they're looking for. It's rather a responsibility and a task. There's no glory in this role. We wait for the crowning day for our reward. There's no glory in the here and now. Right now there's work. Right now there's service. Right now there's effort. Right now we lead by deed. We lead by serving. That's what taking the oversight means. You're going to be expected now to work at taking the oversight of this flock. By serving them. And I've mentioned some of these things to you before. This won't be unusual to you to hear, but that means it's not a part-time job. It's a full-time job. It's not because the current elder or elders need a break. Brother Phil and I are just fine. We don't need a break. It's not as a, mean of easing, a means of easing the load on any of us. No pastor, no elder worth his salt wants to do less for God. It just doesn't exist. It's not as a mechanism to remove certain roles and responsibilities from the current elder or elders. Rather, here's what it is. It's a way of allowing the church to move forward. It's a way of allowing the church to do more. Four elders don't do, the, don't do uh, 25% of the work that one used to do. Four elders do four times the work, allowing the church to move forward. So elders are the leaders of the church. Number two, notice verse number three in that passage we just read, and see that elders are the champions of the local church. Look at verse number three. Nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. I don't know, it may seem a bit redundant with the previous point, but let me see if I can differentiate it a little bit. I I, I think the phrase I want you to see there is that little phrase, examples to the flock. Examples to the flock, guys. That one ought to be burned into your brains and into your souls. Examples to the flock. We cannot be mediocre 
in our service for God. I read a sobering and sadly accurate article, and I I can't remember if I posted this on the church blog or not. I I may have. I know I shared it with some folks. But I think it was by Kevin DeYoung, and it was entitled The Scandal of the Semi-Churched. I know some of you, some are shaking their heads, so I know some of you have seen it. The premise of Brother DeYoung's uh, article there was that our churches are seeing a decline in attendance. But the reason that we're seeing a decline in attendance is not because we're reaching less people and more or less new people are coming in. That's not the reason. The reason is that the people who normally attend are attending less. They're becoming semi-churched. It's common, I think, and sadly so, that Christians put anything and everything ahead of faithfulness to gathering on the Lord's Day. It's not a new problem, but it seems to be an increasing problem. Sports and work and recreation and lazy boys just seem to get the best of us sometimes. Men, if you are in that number, if you count yourself as the semi-church, then you dare not enter into eldership. You see, elders need to be the most faithful to the various services or activities of the church. They need to be more involved than the average church member. They must not be in the number of those who put other things ahead of the church for which Christ died. Elders plan their lives around the church because they're the champions of the local church. Vacations, activities, they don't supersede church. Actually, the opposite. Family members might need to be retrained just a little bit. To understand that on those days that they show up on the Lord's Day, they have two choices. They can either come to church with you, or they can wait until you get back. But you, as a champion of the local church, will be there. It may mean that long-standing activities that used to take you away from church need rescheduled, because you're examples to the flock. And you must be there. You must be there in order to be such. God help the church that has men in leadership who are part of the scandal of the semi church. No, what we need is the ideal that John Piper talks about. John Piper, in his book, Brothers, We Are Not Professionals, listen to what he says. He says, oh, for radically Bible-saturated, God-centered, Christ-exalting, self-sacrificing, mission-mobilizing, soul-saving, culture-confronting pastors or elders. That's what we need. Man, you need to be the champions of the local church. Number three, elders are the servants of the local church. Flip over to 2 Corinthians chapter 4 for just a moment. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Second Corinthians 4, look at verse number 1. Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. But even if our gospel is veiled, It is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves, your bondservants, for Jesus' sake. For it is the the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. I only want you to really notice one verse there. It's verse 5. We do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your bondservants for Jesus' sake. And I really don't have a whole lot that I need to say about it. There's, there's actually just one word I want you to see. It's that word bondservant. It's that word slave. That's what it means. 
I don't think I need to add anything to it. We are bondservants of the church, slaves of the church. Elders are servants. Finally, last thing, elders are the model for the local church. One more passage. Look at Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. Let's read a couple verses starting in verse number 2. Philippians chapter 2, verse 2. Fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. And what I'd like to say about that is elders are the model for the local church. The model. Single mind, single heart, single soul. That's what it said right there. And if elders don't model that, the church never will. Absence of selfishness and self-seeking, if elders don't model that, the local church never will. Others first, always. If elders don't model that, the church never will. Elders are the model of the local church. So there you have it. Four important points that I think uh, I'd like to toss out there as a charge to these brothers who are entering into this adventure. Four important points regarding eldership. Elders are leaders, champions, servants, and models of the church. And at this point, I'm looking at their faces, and I can see that they're all looking for exits. Uh, and, and I confess that that would make sense, wouldn't it? Who in the world wants that job? Who in the world wants a job like that? I mean, really. A role that requires you to lead with no glory and only by serving. A role where you must be champions of the local church Christ died for in spite of the tensions introduced by the semi-churched who are within it. A role where you must be a slave. A role where you must be a model. I read those things and I'm thinking I'm only ten steps from that exit right there. There's no question about it. But let that not be your response. Because the fact is the price is not too high. And the sacrifice is far from difficult. And the reward for serving Jesus is unlike any other. When Paul came to the end of his ministry, he could say with confidence, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. And not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. And as he looked back, over the various hardships of his ministry and all that he had gone through, he was reminded that God had stood with him through the whole thing. And he would until the end. He said, at my first defense, no one stood with me, but all forsook me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me, so that the message might be preached fully through me and that all the Gentiles might hear. Also, I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion, and the Lord will deliver me from every evil work and preserve me for his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. It will be worth it all, the songwriter said, when we see Jesus. It pays to serve Jesus every day, every step of the way. Brothers, I look forward greatly to what God is going to do here in this place as we begin to serve together. I confess I expect a lot from you. And I believe God expects a lot from you. But we will be in it together. And God, who ever and always gives grace and more grace, will enable and help and sustain. And I believe that the church for which Jesus Christ died will move forward as a result.
Let me speak in just the moments that remain to the church. That was for those three. Now let me talk to you just for a minute. Because I think it's necessary that I remind you, church, that just as these three men have taken this step, and just as these three men have uh, responsibilities to the Lord and to you as a result, so too you have responsibilities to the Lord and to them as a result. Let me just share a few passages. And you don't have to turn to these. I'll just mention them quickly. And uh, you can kind of think about these on your own. Some responsibilities now that you have to them. Uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and verse 15 we read, I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanus, that it is the firstfruits of Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the ministry of the saints, that you also submit to such, and to everyone who works and labors with us. Your first responsibility is to let them serve. Your first responsibility is to let them do it. Here was people in this verse that were devoted to the ministry. They had committed themselves to serving and the instruction to them was let them do it. Let them do it. And so we need to do that. In Hebrews chapter 13 we read, Remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. That passage tells us we have the responsibility to remember them and follow them. I, I, I can't be adamant, but I think that remember them includes the idea of prayer. Pray for them. Follow their leadership. The NIV in that verse says, imitate their faith. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 17 says, Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. We need to obey them. And we need to do everything we can to make their service now, as well as on that day when they will give account. And they will. I will. Phil will. We have to give account for our ministry. We need to do everything we can to make that a joyful occurrence for them. And then we need to hold them accountable. Church, this is a responsibility you need to take seriously. You need to hold them accountable. I believe that while the church, or while the elders are to oversee and administer the majority of the things of this local body, they're to shepherd the flock, all of that. I don't believe they're the ultimate authority in some areas. I believe you are. And I don't have time to explain all that, but let me just mention a couple so you see what I mean. In Matthew chapter 18 and 1 Corinthians chapter 5, when church discipline was being discussed, who was the ultimate authority? It wasn't the elders, it was the church. It was the church. Tell it to the church, the ecclesia. It was said in Galatians, Paul wrote that even if he, an apostle, should come and preach a different gospel from the one they had already accepted, they should reject him. He was not talking to the elders, he was talking to the church. I've said this so many times that you probably are sick of hearing it, but you know what? If I start preaching heresy from this pulpit, you have a responsibility to drag me out of here and get me out of here. That's the church's responsibility. I have a responsibility to preach accurate doctrine, but if for some reason I don't, you have a responsibility to find somebody who will. And so the same with these others. You have to hold us accountable, hold me accountable, hold Phil accountable, and Jim, and Ray, and Don, and any others who someday would fall into that role. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, we read that the church as a whole was to administer its membership. This is one of the reasons why one of the only things we vote on in this place as a church is membership. Because here we had the example of a church that uh, they had disciplined somebody and uh, they were to welcome them back into the membership now. And uh, the Apostle Paul directed that instruction to the church, not the elders. The church was responsible. So hold us accountable. Hold us accountable. And finally, 
And I don't have a scripture readily in mind for this all, but I think it's true. You have a responsibility to thank God for him. Thank God for him. Last, uh, last Sunday, Beth and I weren't with you because we were in, we were in uh, Michigan. We were attending the retirement celebration of my friend and mentor, uh, Dr. Charles Whitfield. Some of you know Dr. Whitfield as having been the one who went with us to Israel. Dr. Whitfield retired after almost 58 years pastoring the Grace Baptist Church in Birmingham, Michigan. 58 years. Think about that. I'm 55. I was in diapers. He'd already been preaching for three years in that pulpit. And 58 years later, he was standing in the same pulpit. What an example of perseverance and staying by the stuff. There were many glowing tributes that were given. All kinds of preachers were there and stood and a lot of people have come through his church and so there was a lot of, you know, tears and people saying good things about him. One fellow stood up and he was talking about all that Dr. Whitfield had meant to him. And for some reason, he felt the desire to introduce his family. It had nothing to do with anything, but he decided he was going to introduce his family. So his wife and two sons were standing way back in the back. And he said, let me introduce my family. And they stood up and he introduced his wife. And then he introduced his one son. And he said, my one son is uh, just entering the uh, basic training and he's going into the Marines. And the minute he said that, the entire congregation broke into massive applause, huge ovation for this young man for going into the Marines. The applause died down, and he looked at the other son, and he said, and this is my other son, he introduced me, and he said, and he's just entered Bible college and is going to be going into the ministry. And everybody smiled. And, and you know, we didn't think much about that. Well, then, all that was over, and another pastor took the pulpit. He was the main speaker for the morning. He was a man who had been in the military for much of his life. Some of you know him as well. And uh, before he preached, he said, I feel like I have to say something. He said, just a moment ago, and he said, I can say this because I'm a military man and a pastor. He said, just a moment ago, he said, somebody stood up and was recognized for going into man's army, and we gave him a huge ovation. And somebody stood up and was recognized for entering the Lord's army, and we were tragically silent. And it was a well-timed and needed rebuke. Lord, church, we are so blessed to have men willing to step into the Lord's army and serve. And oh, how we need to let them serve. We need to pray for them. We need to follow them. We need to obey them. We need to hold them accountable. But most of all, we need to praise God for them. And we need to thank him for them. In just a moment, we're going to sing our invitation hymn. And at the conclusion of that hymn, if I haven't scared them off, I'm going to ask Jim and Ray and Don if they will make their way to the front. And wives, you're welcome to join them uh, up here on the platform. There, there is no role or authority in the Bible uh, that accrues to an elder's wife, but all ladies, your support, <laughs> your support in that role is so profound. It's vital. It's irreplaceable. And so uh, they can't do it without you. So we invite you to stand with them. And I'm also going to ask Pastor Phil to come at that time and join me. And we're going to ask them a few questions, have them affirm a couple things before you. We're going to ask you a few questions and have you affirm a couple things. Uh, then we'll lay hands on them and pray. And we'll be done for the day.